Uh, if you are new and visiting, you might not be aware we're in the middle of a, a series on Acts. And uh, last week we were looking at the sort of the, the unifying effect of the gospel, how God showed Jewish people that really had prejudice against Gentiles, how the gospel means God shows no favoritism whatsoever. This week we're, we're continuing on, we're looking at some of the fruit of that unity in the gospel and we're going to see a, a gospel explosion. And really this morning I, I hope to unpack a theme that really stretches throughout the whole of the book of Acts and that is the, the, the work of the Spirit, how, how the Holy Spirit empowers ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And we're flying today, uh, we're looking at three and a half chapters. Um, I'm not going to read it all out, we're just going to you know, take an overview of, of all um, that this section of the Lord's Word has to say. But why don't you join with me as I read from uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Uh, I'm going to read an uh, end section to our passage, and then, and then I'm going to pray. So Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, They committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they came down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we gather together as your people, your people who you love, your people who you bought at the cost of your son, and your people who, like myself, are prone to fear, are prone to being afraid when it comes to sharing the gospel. Lord, I I pray this morning for us 
And I pray first and foremost for me, Lord. Lord, I pray that by your spirit this morning, you would grant us boldness, Lord. Empower your people to be bold with your gospel, Lord. Empower your people to boldly speak the truth about all you are and all you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I I wanted to start this morning by sharing with you something that you may not know about me, and there's a good reason for it. Um, And that is that that I play the violin. I, I... I do, in fact, play the violin. And I played, I learned the violin, in fact, for about 15 years. But there's one thing that, and a reason for which you might know, know that I play the violin, is that when it comes to playing the violin in front of people, I have this thing where I just get incredibly, incredibly nervous. It doesn't matter if it's even just people in my family playing in front of my family. It doesn't matter if it's just a few of my friends or a large crowd. I get, I get so nervous. I just suddenly, all my practice goes out the window. I stutter and uh, my hands shake. And I just, this paralyzing fear that I'm going to forget what comes next and get lost in the music uh, just cu- overcomes me and somehow becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I used to be a bit of a one-hit wonder. Uh, I had one piece that kind of, over many, many years, uh, I'd sort of been practicing and working on and, and, and training for a piece called Tice Meditation. Um, if, if you play the violin or you've grown up playing the violin, you'll probably be familiar with it. And uh, I had practiced this piece and practiced with it, with it in the hope of performing it. So after much, much encouragement and uh, pressure from my parents, I entered myself into the Steadfoot in my local area, and oh man, it was so, oh, I was just so nervous coming out, even like trying to hold my violin, I was worried I was going to drop it, like I was shaking so much, and um, they had some really encouraging remarks at the end with the judging, but as you can understand, I didn't win, uh, I repeated the, the same sort of section of it about three times, and um, <laughs> but the worst of all was when I was enlisted to perform in front of my whole school at our sort of school performance night in high school. My friends and all their uh, parents gathered around the spotlight on me. My friend Tom, who is a brilliant uh, musician playing on the keys and pretty much carrying me uh, through the song. And I was so nervous. I can remember just even waiting to come out on the stage, just like trembling, dreading it for weeks beforehand. And somehow, by God's grace, I got through the song. And uh, I can remember some parents coming to me after the show and just trying to be encouraging and trying to encourage me and saying, oh, Brennan, the vibrato that you did, which is where your hand, like you shake your hands playing the violin, it was just beautiful. And I sort of went along with it. And yes, it was. They didn't know that it was just my uh, trembling for fear of performing in front of anyone. But, you know, I don't know if you can relate like me to being nervous, but I think there's an area where we can all be particularly nervous. And that's when it comes to sharing our faith. It's when it comes to stepping out to talk to someone about the gospel, about Jesus. And so that's the issue that I want to be addressing today. I've I've called this sermon, Behold, I am with you. Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we'll be looking at really three movements in this story, three sections in this story that show the intimate hand of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, building his church. And that is, firstly, that he is at work in commissioning the saints. 
He is at work, secondly, in crisis. He is at work, lastly, in conversion. Commissioning, crisis, and conversion. But one real point that I'll be driving at throughout this message, and that is this. As as you see the spirit of Christ building his church through ordinary people, that God would grant you boldness. As you see the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ building his church through ordinary people like you and me, that God would grant you boldness. Well, point one, commissioning the saints. By commissioning, I just want to pause to explain what I mean by that. I thought about this point, and do I call it calling? But really, I want to, I want to help you to see more than just calling, that God calls people to serve him. I want you to see more than that. I want you to see commissioning. It's, it's, it's more than calling. It's, it's ordering and approving and sending. It's molding and shaping like an artist is commissioned for a painting or a sculpture, like a warship is commissioned for battle. I want you to see that, that Christ commissions us. He calls us and then he enables us and forms us to do the work for which he's called us to do. By way of context, uh, as I shared earlier on, the gospel has just gone to the Gentiles. And earlier on in, in the narrative of Acts, we see that with the stoning of Stephen, Christians are flung out into the regions around. Christians travel away in fear, but in the providence of God as well, they share the gospel with people they come across. And as our chapter begins, we learn that Christians had been, Jewish Christians had been traveling out preaching the gospel exclusively to other Jews. Yet for a couple of people, a handful of people in a place called Antioch, some people from Jewish Christians from Cyrene and Cyprus preached the gospel to Gentiles. Maybe they heard of, of all the work, work the Lord had done in, 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 in allowing the gospel to come to Cornelius, or maybe not. All we hear is that these Christians, Jewish Christians, began preaching the gospel to Gentiles and many Gentiles come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're born again. They come to trust in him. And so this word of all that's happened uh, begins to come down to the church in Jerusalem, which is where our story begins. The word about all that's happening as this massive amount of conversion spread comes to a man called Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, his real name was actually Joseph. But earlier on in Acts, we learn that the disciples, the Christians in Jerusalem, they named this guy again Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because this man was an encourager. You know, when I think of encouragers, I think like a Rossi or a Glenn Thompson. You know, like Dave and I have a joke about Glenn, and that is that if you've preached the worst sermon possible, Glenn will still have a word of encouragement for you. Um, he's an encourager. We, we thank God for him. But this man, Barnabas, is, is an encourager. His, his name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. And he was the guy in Acts chapter 4 who sells a piece of property that he has a field and he takes the proceeds and he lays it at the disciples' feet. He's a generous man. But he's not only a generous, encouraging guy, he is also a, a really kind-hearted guy that has compassion on other people. In Acts chapter 9, as uh, Saul is converted, trusts in Jesus Christ, 
Barnabas is the only man, the only one of the disciples who will take him in. Everyone else is afraid of Saul, except for Barnabas, who has compassion on him, takes him in, and then takes him to the disciples. This is Barnabas, the encouragement. And so the church in Jerusalem hear about all that's going on in Antioch, and they send this guy up. They say, Barnabas, off you go and and check it out for us. So why don't you read with me uh, from Acts chapter 11, verse 22. The report came of this, that is, all the Gentiles becoming Christians, to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So here you have this beautiful scene of Barnabas coming to Antioch where they've heard all these stories about about Gentiles becoming Christians And he sees something. And what he sees is not a great strategy. And what he sees is not great leaders or a great facility. No, what he sees is the grace of God. Barnabas comes and he sees the grace of God. And his response is pure joy. He was glad. And he was so glad that he did what Barnabas does best. And that's encouraged. So he exhorts the believers to remain faithful to the apostles' teaching. He he exhorts the believers to stay faithful to the message of the gospel. And as a result of his exhorting and preaching of the gospel, heaps of people, a great many people, it says, come to trust in Jesus. Well, the question is, obviously, is, well, how does this all happen? How do so many people come to suddenly trust in Jesus Christ for the first time? Well, one thing that it doesn't say about Barnabas is it, is it doesn't say that Barnabas was a great preacher. It doesn't say that Barnabas was a great leader or particularly fearless at all. It says that he was a good man. And that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. John Piper, on reflection on this passage, says this. He says, There is no reference here to Barnabas's gifts, but only to his graces. That is, his spiritual and moral qualities, not his skills. Verse 24, he was good, He was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. The effect was that God worked. He added people to the Lord. Hear this. God is not mainly looking for great gifts. He is looking for great faith that is willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? God is not mainly looking for 
greatly gifted people. He's looking for people that are faithful, that are willing to step out and trust him, trust the presence and work of his Holy Spirit. He's looking for people of great faith. This means that he's not primarily interested in your gifts. He's primarily interested in your faithfulness. You know, if you don't feel as though you have the gifts to share the gospel with your friends, Christ is saying to you this morning, you can trust me. You can trust me. In Barnabas, we have this beautiful picture, I think, of an ordinary guy that does extraordinary things. Why? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's also full of goodness and faith, but they're fruits of the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and so the result is huge conversions, full of that same Spirit that rests in us. Well, he goes on after having... Uh, preach the word to these people to go and get the best disciple maker he knows. That man he welcomed into his home back in Acts chapter 9, Paul. And Paul is living in Tarsus and because he's so excited and he, he wants a partner to continue on in the work of the Lord with him, he grabs Paul, he takes him to Antioch. And so we read on, 11.27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Holy Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So prophets come down from Jerusalem or come up from Jerusalem to Antioch where they are. And Agabus, one of the prophets, by the Holy Spirit, predicts, prophesies that a great famine is going to come across the whole world. And so the disciples decide they're going to make a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Well, why the church in Jerusalem? Well, we can probably assume because in Acts chapter 2 and 4, the church in Jerusalem gave away pretty much everything they owned to the poor and needy and amongst themselves. So they were poor. And so they take this collection and they entrust it to Barnabas, a man who has demonstrated already that he's faithful. And they send Barnabas with Paul down to Jerusalem in order to partake in sort of a mercy mission to the church in Jerusalem. But the thing I want us to notice in here is who does the sending of Barnabas and Paul? And that is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that prompts this prophet, Agabus, to speak of the great famine that's coming. And therefore, it is through the speaking of the Holy Spirit that Barnabas and Paul are set aside and sent to Jerusalem for the work that God has planned for them. And this work of the Holy Spirit in guiding and directing all Christians in the book of Acts is prevalent all the way through. This is not a particularly unique aspect of this scripture. This is commonplace. If we read through to chapter 13, verses 2, we see the text says, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. If we turn through to chapter 16, in verse 6, we read, And they went throughout the region of Phygra and Galatia, that is Paul and Silas, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Throughout the scripture, we see the apostles and Christians being directed not by their own initiatives or by their own strategy, but by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so in Paul and Barnabas, we see two ordinary men who Jesus Christ takes and molds for his service, guiding them along the way by his spirit. And the truth is that God continues to guide people by his spirit even today. That same spirit is at work guarding Christians, commissioning Christians, even to this day. I mean, do you ever find yourself nervous, not even knowing where to begin in sharing the gospel with your friends? Not even knowing, I mean, Lord, who's the person who you're even calling me to befriend and intentionally seek to, seek to get alongside that I might share the gospel? You don't even know where to start, such as the nervousness that you feel about it. Do you even find yourself nervous in wondering, you know, what would you even say? What would you, how would you even begin to share the gospel? You know, he is guiding you. He is guiding your steps and preparing you. I had an example just the other week uh, at work. Many of you know that, that I work in uh, a nursing home for half a day and, and the rest of the time I spend working at St. Vincent's Hospital, private hospital in the city, and uh, I had a situation where I was at my nursing home, uh, going about my regular day. The manager of the nursing home comes to me and says, oh, Brendan, we're putting on a new physio. We'd like you to spend some good time today just in initiating them to, to, to the nursing home. And I thought to myself, great. Last thing I wanted to hear. You know, here I am. I've got a busy schedule. got things to do. I've got to waste my day, you know, showing this person around, you know, showing them what to do. Anyway, I, I met this girl uh, who had been put on at the nursing home and we spent the day she was a pleasant girl and showing around showing everything uh, around the nursing home what to do all the all the strategies how to care for people we get to the end of the day and she says oh so what do you do with the rest of your week when you're not here i said oh well i work you know two days at st vincent's she goes oh what do you do with the rest of the time when you're not at st vincent's i said okay uh you know I, i work for a church i'm training as a pastor This girl then goes and shares her whole life story about how she uh, was born and raised in South Africa with a Jehovah's Witness family, had left them to come here to get away from that whole community and is spiritually seeking, not sure what's the truth and just looking for answers. And I was just blown away by, one, my lack of faith, um, but two... This is the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't because of my goodness that I was led to, that this girl was placed next to me. It was the kindness of the Lord in, in all that he's doing, that he would place this spiritually seeking girl at, right in my path. The Holy Spirit continues his commissioning work even to this day. There are no accidents with God. Friends, you are not part of this church by any accident or the Lord knows you. He has a plan for you. He's molding you and shaping you for the good works in which he has planned to do by the work of his spirit. So we can find boldness 
in knowing that God is preparing us. God is commissioning us and guiding us by the power of his spirit. Well, that's point one, commissioning. Point two, in crisis. Well, Barnabas and Paul are now in Jerusalem and, and Luke really pauses his story to help us to see what God is doing in the city at this time, in the midst of crisis. So why don't you read with me from Luke chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod is this violent tyrant. And he's going around and he kills James as and 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 sees that people love it because he loves the praise of man and he grabs Peter and puts him in prison. Now it's the Passover, so Peter can't be tried. He has to wait until after the Passover, according to Jewish law, to, to try him. So he's locked him in prison. And because Herod hates so much the spread of the gospel, and because Herod so much wants the glory for himself, Peter for him is his prized prisoner. And so he gets four lots of squads of, of guards. That's four lots of four guards to guard him. And, and it seems to be this helpless situation. He's in prison. Instead of the usual being chained to one guard, Peter is chained to two guards in a prison with four squads of guards around him. The previous apostle James seemingly have been murdered. So nothing to, to think, let us think that there would be any of a different situation here. Except something else was happening at the same time. Why don't you read with me in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by, to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two, two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So here we have the church gathered together praying for him. And Peter, fast asleep, bound between two guards. I mean, I just, I don't know what Peter was thinking, whether it was a confidence in the Lord or he was just knackered. But I mean, even just last week, the other week, I had to have a simple procedure like a gastroscopy where they put a tube down your throat. I was so nervous, you know, like I was thinking like it's going to be like, like that's all I could get in my head. I was so afraid. Like I couldn't sleep. I was like, oh, no, Lord, help me. And here this guy is on the night he's going to be taken out, probably be killed, and he's asleep. And an angel comes and whacks him. And... um, Waxing says, get up, Peter. And Peter's up and he's not sure if it's a haze or what it is. And he leads him out of the prison and through these doors and out onto the street. And then the angel disappears. And Peter suddenly comes to him and he's like, wow, I've been free. And so he travels to the disciples' home where they're all gathered together. And, and he starts knocking on the door. Read with me, verse 13. He's knocking on the door. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, 
She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting, no, 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 that this was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But when Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. I love this scene. You know, here you have Peter knocking at the door. The disciples are in praying for him. Peter's outside knocking at the door. The disciples are in praying for him, but they're not expecting an answer. And Peter's knocking at the door and this servant girl comes and sees him. She's so, so she doesn't even let him in. But Peter just continues on. He's carrying on knocking. He wants to get in. He's like, hey guys, come on, let me in, let me, let me, let me in. You know, he's, he's worried that someone's going to find him. And he continues knocking. And the key verse comes up in verse 17, doesn't it? The key verse in verse 17 comes as Peter then explains to them all that's happened. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out. Because even in the midst of this crisis, the Lord is busy at work building his church. The death of James was not an accident. The death of James was part of his plan. And now he's continued to move in demonstrating his glory through releasing Peter. But he's not finished with Herod yet. Oh, he's not finished with Herod. Read verse 21. Now Herod has come together and there's the people from Tyre and Sidon are gathered around. Uh, Herod has gathered the people together. They depend on him for food because Judea at that time was a bit of a bread basket of that area. And so it says on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last You know, the historian, the Judean historian Josephus writes of this scene how Herod is dressed in this splendous robe in silver, in fact, and and is struck down dead in that moment by worms. And the point is this. The point of this passage, the reason why Luke pauses here to explain it to us is this, that if you oppose Jesus, you will lose. If you oppose God, the toughest prison will not hold his disciples And you yourself will be made weaker than a worm. God will not let his glory to another. And Christ is intimately involved in building his church. Despite persecution, it says in verse 24, the word continued to move and multiply in that place. This this should, friends, grant us boldness. There is nothing that can prevent the work of Christ in building his church. And yet when we look at this passage, we so often, if you're like me, can be prone to think that these events happened to Peter because he was a particularly faithful guy. It was because of his particular faith and gifts that God 
used him in this time for this amazing scene. But what was Peter's part in it all? I mean, Peter in this passage is just an ordinary guy. This is prejudiced Peter who took three visions from God for him to even move to share the gospel with someone of a different ethnicity to him. This is Peter who was rebuked and denied Christ. This is Peter who would go on to lose the plot on grace and be rebuked by the apostle Paul. His part in this is he slept. He slept. And the reason is because this is not about him. It's not about him. It's about the work of Christ in building his church. He's caught up in a movement of Christ. The disciples, well, maybe it's about their faithfulness in praying and and how dedicated they were to the Lord. The disciples are gathered together praying in fear, not even expecting an answer. No, they too are caught up in a work of a movement of Christ. You know, so often I think we can be prone to making comparisons, comparing ourselves to other Christians. I know I do it all the time. You know, often when it comes to things like pastors' conferences or leadership conferences, I can feel intimidated because I think to myself, you know what, I'm not as smart as, not as faithful as, not as gifted a preacher as, not as tall as. And I look around the room and I just think, you know what, I'm unimpressive. He'd never use me. Well, hear this. If that's the way you feel, you are perfect for him. You are absolutely perfect for him. Why? Because he's jealous for his glory and it's not about you. It's about a work that he's doing. You know, I was reading just this morning in my, in my devotions, I was prompted by it just from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is the Apostle, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hear this. And I was with you in weakness. And I was with you in fear. And I was with you in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Did you hear that? Even the Apostle Paul says, I was with you in weakness and trembling and fear. Because it's not about us. It's about the work of Christ in building his church. We can be bold because Christ is with us building his church, even in crisis we're caught up in a movement of God in building his church. Well, point three, conversion. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they finish their work in Jerusalem and they head back to Antioch. And it's a praise and worship service that we see and they're set apart, as we read before, by the Holy Spirit and they're sent out as missionaries. Well, read with me Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed 
to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here they are, there to preach the gospel. They head out to Cyprus, which was Barnabas's homeland, where he was from. He was a Cypriot. And they come across a certain magician. They stumbled across. Well, we know better than that. It's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. His name is Joseph or Elymas. means magician, Jewish and a false prophet. He's working at the courts of the proconsul the, who hears of Paul and Barnabas and all that they're doing, the proconsul, and tries to, tries to get them to come to speak to him. But Elymas the magician tries to turn the proconsul from jealousy or rage, we're not sure, away from them, against them. And we meet this proconsul, this man called Sergius Paulus. He was probably a man of history, Lucius Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul of Cyprus at this time. Now, this is a significant position, friends. The proconsul of Cyprus, the proconsul was elected by the Roman Senate to be head or equivalent of governor of a whole region. And this man we heard is an intelligent man. He has some sort of religious interest. He's, I mean, he's hired this Jewish false prophet to be on his court. So he has a, an interest and he wants to hear, hear about this, this word from God. But the point that we should notice is this significant man calls Paul and Barnabas to come to his courts. Now, Paul and Barnabas are absolute nobodies. These guys are nobodies. They don't have any power in the Roman Empire. They don't have any political authority. They don't have the backing of any global church. They are absolute nobodies. And yet the proconsul calls them, the whole governor of the whole region calls them in. It's amazing. This is, this is massive. And so read with me. Read with me. Uh, verse 9. I, I, I love this. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is Paul, Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at Elymas, the magician. And I just... This is, this is powerful. And he said to him, I'll just hear these words. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. 
immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is an amazing scene. I mean, this is explosive expansion of the gospel. We have Paul and Barnabas in the midst of their first missionary journey and an amazing miracle. I mean, can you imagine being there? The Holy Spirit had orchestrated the whole event. His plan was to save Sergius Paulus. He stands there. He stands there and with this amazing boldness proclaims the word of the Lord. Why? How? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Barnabas to speak the gospel with incredible power and authority to this man. They didn't have an ecclesiastical authority, but they had the church in Antioch praying. And they had the Holy Spirit with them. And this is the way that God has chosen to work through the entire book. Through the whole book, in chapter 16, verse 14, it says, One who heard us, that is Luke speaking now, was a woman named Lydia from the city of of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. This is the work of God calling people to trust in him. It's all his work. Verse uh, Chapter 18, verse 9 through to 10 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. That's God speaking to Paul in Corinth. The Lord had ordained that by the power of the Spirit, he would lead them right from the very beginning, right when they were coming up from, Barnabas was coming up from Jerusalem to Antioch, right from the beginning, he had foresworn that he would lead them to Cyprus to save Sergius Paulus. And so they travel to Antioch in Pisidia and Paul preaches at the synagogue. And the people reject him there. They say in verse 46, the the word of God says, since you thrust aside the gospel, Paul says to the Gentiles, to to the Jews, we're taking it to the Gentiles. And so in chapter 13, verse 48, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is human responsibility and divine sovereignty. This is our part and the Lord's part. They preached the gospel. It was rejected, but the Lord had appointed for others to trust and believe. And this, friends, is the work of the gospel. This is the work of God and what he has done in our lives. We were dead. We were dead. We were spiritually corpses. What can a corpse contribute to its salvation? What can a corpse do in in order to be saved? Nothing at all. And yet we hear Paul write, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by 
By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was the work of God from beginning to end. He caused our hearts to stir in affection for Christ. He led us to trust and receive the gift. He made us alive and cancelled the debt. It's all of him, all of grace through faith. And friends, this gospel that we're speaking of is powerful. This gospel is of Jesus Christ is at work calling people to faith. And so as a church, we are going to take it out. You know, we talked about this morning about walk-up evangelism. And, and next week, we're going to take out the gospel. We're going to go out after church. We're going to speak to people about Jesus. And I know for some of you sitting here, as I say that, you feel nervous. But I want to say I felt nervous for longer than you because I've planned the thing. Um, and part of me just is like, oh, just, oh, oh, do, do we have to do it? Friends, the power is here. The power is in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is mighty to save. It saved all of us. And it's powerful to save. And so we're going to practice by going out to talk to people about Jesus because we believe in the power in this, in the message in this book. And we need to ask for boldness. We need to ask the Lord to help us to be bold. You know, Max Stiles, he, he writes this. Boldness is not a lack of fear. It is a faith in something bigger than our fears so that we appear fearless. Confidence in something bigger than our fears gives us strength to do the right thing in spite of opposition and persecution. If anything is needed in Christian witness today, it is boldness. We don't need bigger music ministries, longer prayer walks or church foyers. We need boldness, wise boldness, gracious boldness, boldness rooted in the hope we have in the gospel, boldness mixed with love, but boldness nonetheless. I think it's right. Friends, we need to ask the Lord for boldness. Well, we can be bold because the Holy Spirit not only leads us, but opens the hearts of those he leads us too, leading them to trust in Christ. Well, in closing, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they journeyed to Cyprus and then to Pisidian Antioch, then to Iconium, then to, Ly- uh, to Lystra, and then finally back to Antioch. And at the end of our passage in what we read before, It says this, and this summarizes the whole of all that has happened. It says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Beginning to end, all of grace, all of God. Commended to the grace of God, opened doors by the grace of God. The Spirit 
was at work in the lives of Paul and Barnabas and continues to work today. He is working in commissioning the saints. He is working in crisis. He is working in conversion. Church, let's step out in faith and boldness, knowing that he is with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come before your throne of grace. A throne full of grace. A throne full of mercy. A throne full of kindness. Lord, I know for many sharing the gospel with their friends is a source of condemnation. Because, Lord, it's a source of condemnation for me. Lord, I pray that there would be no condemnation as we consider this, but hope rooted in faith that you are sovereign, you are building your church, you are with us, you will never forsake us. You have a mighty plan, you are calling people to yourself. We are caught in the midst of us, our inadequacies do nothing but magnify your grace and your power and your strength. Lord God, we pray that you would grant us faith and boldness, Lord. Help us to trust that you are with us in those conversations, Lord, in those difficult conversations. Help us to step out trusting you, Lord, in your mighty hand. And Lord, may you grant us the privilege of experiencing the joy of seeing people come to be born again, Lord. People come to trust in you for the very first time. Lord, we long to see it. Would you do it? Would you fill this room, this this whole place, Lord, with baby Christians, people trusting in you for the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.